0: survey, 90% of Americans believe in God, yet 50% of those who do have not been to a church service in the past three months. Only 1 in 10, 10%, believe in all Ten Commandments, while 40% believe in five or fewer commandments. 82% of Americans profess to believe in in an afterlife that includes both heaven and hell, With almost half, 46%, expecting to spend eternity in heaven versus only 4% who see their future in hell. Now, how you account for the difference that still is out there, I don't know. But of the folks expecting to go to heaven, over 80% believe they will be there based upon their doing good deeds. Yet the Bible teaches that those who will be there will be there by the grace of God. In a recent study, we learned that Jesus clearly warned that many were on the wide or broad road that led to destruction and fewer on the narrow path leading to eternal life in heaven, which is 180 degrees from the survey results just quoted. Someone is wrong, and I know that it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does one account for such a disparity? I believe the answer is simple and yet very offensive when I say it but it is because of ignorance of God and ignorance of His Word. I came across the following story that illustrates the value of having an understanding of Scripture. The story goes that a new pastor moved into town and went out one Saturday to visit his parishioners, and all went well until he came to one house. It was obvious that someone was home, but no one came to the door even after he knocked several times. Finally, he took out his card and wrote on the back, Revelation 3.20, and he stuck it in the door. It says, the next day as he was counting the offering, he found his card in the collection plate, and below his message was a notation, Genesis 3.10. Now, if you know the scriptures, you're probably smiling by now, but for those who may not know, Revelation 3.20 reads, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll have supper with him and he with me. Genesis 3.10 reads, and he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> Little codes like that. In our ongoing study of the book of Acts, we come to a passage that is no laughing matter, for it addresses the confusion found in the Barna survey. And the question is, how does one get to heaven? Is it as the majority of folks today believe, by human effort? Or is it as the Bible clearly teaches, that all those who ultimately will be in heaven one day will find themselves there by the grace of God? Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, which addresses very clearly this particular question, and this issue. In Acts 15, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. In this passage, the gospel of Jesus Christ is put on trial. God's grace and his plan for salvation, his plan to redeem mankind to himself, is under attack. Is salvation, as the majority believe, based on human effort... Or as the Bible clearly teaches, based upon God's grace, it is a gift for those who believe. That is what this passage addresses in great detail. And it will be a very simple outline that will follow, but one that is of extreme importance and obvious relevance. Because if you think about what that survey is saying, the majority of people in this country believe that they are going to heaven. And the majority of them believe that they are going to heaven on the basis of their good works or efforts. That somehow they can work their way into the presence of God one day. It is extremely important that we understand what the Bible clearly teaches. The first thing that we're going to look at in these first five verses is the denial. And what I mean by that is in this opening paragraph we're immediately introduced to a fact that I pray that we don't miss and that uh, that there is... And that there is and are those who teach truth and those who God identifies as false teachers. False teachers. We're told that some men came down from Judea and began teaching. And they came and began to teach. And as we will see, what they were teaching doesn't line up to what God says. And so they were teaching a lie. Plain and simple. False teachers have plagued the church throughout its history. We're told that they are emissaries or ambassadors of Satan and not of God, sent to destroy the church's power and also corrupt its proclamation or its message. Two of the apostles who are at this Jerusalem council, who we'll see in a minute, Peter and Paul, warned of false teachers and their damning influence. Peter wrote of them as this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce heresy, destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He goes, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul warned the leaders of the church at Ephesus and goes on by saying, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things. Draw away and they'll try to draw away the disciples after themselves. The point is very simple and that we need to understand there will be people who teach that which is wrong. They are false teachers. They are emissaries of the devil. They've come to pollute or destroy the clear message that's taught throughout the word of God. We need to recognize and understand that it has nothing to do with their sincerity. It has nothing to do well even with their intent. It has to do with the message that they deliver. And the message should always be examined against what's clearly revealed in the Word of God. Paul went on to talk about those in Berea as being more noble-minded than those in the city of Thessalonica. Because even as the apostle, the great apostle Paul, spoke to them, they continued to examine the scripture to see if what he was saying lined up with what had already been revealed to them. It's important that we recognize and understand that there will be those who specifically tell people that which is a lie. Anyone who tells a person that they could get to heaven by working themselves or doing something or some effort of some sort or by doing this, that, or the other thing is specifically a lie from the pit of hell. We need to understand that very clearly. It's important that we see that. Notice that the word unless is what gives them up. He says that you cannot become a Christian unless you are circumcised in this particular case. The word unless. Carefully, what they were teaching was that they were denying those. They were denying that those who believed that they had come into a genuine relationship with God. How did that relationship take place? Because they were confronted with the word of God. God's message was very simple, that all mankind is fallen has sinned before God and has come into the world with a stain stamped upon their very soul. And that is we're all guilty of sin. The message was very clear. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that none are righteous. That was the message that they heard. And they recognized that of themselves. I'm not perfect. I have made mistakes. And if God says the standard to this, I have fallen short of that standard. Particularly because God's standard is perfection. And none of us after all are perfect. They heard that message and they understood they were guilty before God. And they also understood that if they were guilty of sin, that a price had to be paid for the wages of sin is death. The consequences of disobedience before God, of rebelling against God, there are always consequences. It's not hard for us to see that in the world that we live in. When we do that which is wrong, there are consequences. There are consequences and benefits for every decision that every human being makes, whether good or whether bad. And the message that I talked about a second ago where Jesus said that many were on the road that led to destruction. The reality of that message was very simple. And the reality of the message was that there are many who are on the road that lead to destruction. And very few are on the path that leads to eternal life. And then he said, choose carefully which path you want to continue to travel upon. Because at the end of that road is your final destiny. The end of the road is eternal life or heaven. The end of the road is eternal death or a place called hell or the lake of fire. Where do you want to end up? Choose wisely the path that you continue to travel. See, there's always consequences. There's always benefits or blessings to right choices, consequence to bad choices. And what's interesting is that these people who heard that message, they repented of their sin you're right, God, I'm guilty, and they, they repented, God, forgive me, and they turned from sin, and they turned to God, and they threw themselves upon the mercy of God, believing what he said, that the only way that they'll ever be made right with God is believing his plan, which was that he loved them so much, and all of us, that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever would believe upon him would be saved and not perish. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, And his authority to save you. And you shall be saved. That was the message they heard. That was the message they embraced. And they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they were, according to the Bible, born again. And they were excited about this relationship with God. They were free from the judgment and consequences of sin. And man, they were excited about this newfound relationship. And now these people came into their life and said, you're mistaken. That's not God's message. You're not forgiven by God. You're not a child of God by simply believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not saved from the consequences of sin unless you're circumcised. Subtly, they threw that message in. Unless you follow the ritual of the law. In other words, God's grace is not by itself sufficient to redeem mankind. God's grace isn't enough. God can't do it on his own. And this salvation by human works is the most destructive of the destructive heresies that were warned of by Peter since it damns men for all of eternity. Salvation by human effort is the foundation of every false religion and the longest running heresy in the history of the church. And these men, uninvited and unauthorized, Carried this deadly spiritual plague to Antioch. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching. Nothing more and nothing less than a lie from the pit of hell. And causing great confusion. Now think about Paul and Barnabas. When they heard about this. It says that there was a great debate. Or great dissension. You say, well, man, why such a debate? Why such a heated response to this false teaching? Well, I was like, hey, no big deal. Don't worry about what they have to say. You know the truth. Don't let it bother you. The reason was very simple. As shepherds, as those who loved those who they had shared the message with, they were concerned for their spiritual well-being and for their health. You know, if you stop and think about a shepherd, a shepherd was a person who protected the sheep or his flock. And he had a shepherd's crook that was with him. And when that sheep would get out of line, he would kind of nudge him on the side and, and push him in the right direction. We're told that the scriptures or all the word of God or the Bible is like that for the life of the believer. When we get rebuked, when we're going the wrong direction, we get nudged to the side and say, no, no, you're going the wrong way. Correction, here's where you need to go. And kind of a little tap on the side and say, this is the direction that we need to go to be right with God. But also that crook was used as ravaged wolves that came to try to destroy the sheep, man. They picked those things up and they conked some head, man. They knocked a the snot out of some wolves, I'm telling you right now. That's a reality of one who protects and loves those who God has entrusted to their care. And so Paul and Barnabas and Peter, as we'll see, in James, there was a heated debate. Why was there such a heated debate? Think about it. The eternal destiny of men and women hung in the balance. This false message, if embraced, leads to eternal death and destruction with no remedy. For people in our world today to embrace any kind of theology that says, all you got to do to be right with God is work your way into heaven. And here's the list of things that we say in our organization that you must do. For anyone to embrace that is to damn that person for all of eternity because the end of that path is eternal destruction. Why such a heated debate? Because eternal destinies were on the line. I mean, they got excited about it. They were angry about it. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is clear. By grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. It's not of human works or human effort. See, eternal life, forgiveness, and fellowship with God is at the end of the path for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who work their way to heaven inevitably work their way to hell. And the point I want to make about this great debate is very simple. There are things in life worth fighting for. There are things in life even worth dying for. The Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross so that those who would believe upon him would have eternal life. I'm getting weary of the ignorance displayed by those who protest against those who put their lives at risk to fight evil. I get weary of seeing and I wonder why we cover a handful of people who would say that fighting evil is somehow wrong. Let's all hold hands and maybe evil people will turn into good people. It's ignorance. We live in a world of moral absolutes. There is evil and there is good. There are lies and there is truth. And it's about time we get out of the gray and obscure and fuzzy twilight area that that knows neither truth nor error. There was great dissension and a heated debate. To protect the integrity of the gospel message that it's by grace through faith that one is saved and not by human effort. Today that lie is seen in such statements as you're not really a Christian unless or until you've been and then fill in the blank. Until you've been baptized. Until you've been confirmed. Until you've uh, received communion or celebrated the Lord's Supper. Until you become a church member. Until you give so much money. Until you do so many good deeds and so much good work. You know, that lie is perpetuated. That great destructive heresy continues to our day... ...confusing people as to the integrity of the gospel message. The message is clear. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And it's not based on a list of do's and don'ts. It's based on belief. Now, granted, there must be evidence of one's salvation. The Bible says, if any man's in Christ... He's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. There should be an evidence by the way that we live our lives and conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. For those who say, I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, and there's no no difference in your life after such a time has taken place, you better examine yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. Because the Bible clearly teaches that there will be evidence of it. This passage deals with how is one saved or how does one enter into a relationship with God. He goes on and says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension in verse 2 and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. What they're saying was, man, you know what? This is such a major problem. We've got to get the answer to this once and for all of eternity. Let's resolve this issue. So they sent him up to the church in Jerusalem. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church in verse verse 3, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. There was no question that Paul and Barnabas recognized the evidence that these men and women who had come to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in his death for their forgiveness of sins, believing in the power of his resurrection, that they had genuinely become born again... He went into great detail as to the truth of their conversion. The evidence was overwhelming. And because what he shared with them, it brought great joy. You know what I have found in my life? The gospel message always brings great joy to those who receive it. Always. Frees you up. Always. Legalism... Continues to put a burden upon your shoulder. You're not a believer in less. You're not a believer until. And here's the list that we came up with, and what's, it's like dealing? you know what it's like for me being in the construction industry, it's like dealing with inspectors. <laughs> Seriously, you go out on a job and you go, "Hey, you know what? We, we need to get a final inspection on the project." Inspector comes out, I'll give you a list of six things that need to be done before I'll sign it off and give you a final. You get out of the job, you do those six things. You go back out, you call him out for an inspection. He comes back out, what's he find? Five more things. You go, hey man, why don't you just give us a list of 11 things? Hey, you know what? Just do what I tell you to do. Man, I'll tell you, you talk about a burden. You talk about frustration. You talk about a lack of joy in constructionville. I mean, <laughs> that, you, it, it just, it wears you out. See, and that's what legalism done. It, it, it does. It wears people out. You're not truly a child of God. You're not really born again until you do what we think you should do. But grace frees you up. Always does. Always will. There was great joy, man. They were like, wow, this is awesome. Freedom in Christ. God's grace and his ability to save is put on trial. And Peter, as well as Paul, Barnabas, and James will give an answer, a defense for the hope that is within them. And will do so with gentleness and reverence and patience and great instruction. They will be called as if they were witnesses to the stand to answer the question. Is it by grace that you're saved? Or is it grace plus? Linsky writes of grace plus. To add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation. Whether circumcision or any other human work of any kind. Is to, not, is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior, is to put something human on a par with Him, even to make it the crowning point, and that is eternally fatal. A bridge to heaven that is built of 99 and one hundredths of Christ, and even only of 1% of anything human, breaks down at that joint and ceases to be a bridge to the presence of God. Even if Christ be thought of as carrying us for 999 miles of the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still far away and outside our grasp. It doesn't get any clearer than that. How would you answer the question of one who would come to you and say, Do you believe in God? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Where do you believe that you will be after this life? And on what basis will you be there? How would you defend salvation by God's grace versus human works? You know, I think it may come in handy considering 80% of those who believe in heaven believe they will get there by some human effort. This is vitally important and urgent in such a time as this. It is always important, but particularly now when people are sensitive to spiritual things. It's very important that we don't promote a lie and confusion, but we direct them to the truth. There is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God but through Him. You cannot work your way to heaven There's nothing good that you can do. God recognizes all of our so-called goodness and efforts as filthy rags in His sight because it demeans what He has done for us in the person and the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the cross and the power of His resurrection. Anything other than that is damning, eternally damning. And we need to be in a position, those of us who have come to know Him, to share the truth in such a way that it cannot be mistaken. And it must be acted upon. God's grace is on trial. And that's the picture that we have in Acts chapter 15. And we will see a defense. And the defense will come from, as I said, Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And the Lord's half-brother, James. And we read their defense, starting with verse 6. And the apostles and the elders came to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and what? And believe. His first defense, or six proofs as it were, that salvation is all of God's grace and not of human effort, is that of past revelation. He says to them, don't forget what has already taken place. He took his listeners back to the early days of the church and reminded them that God had appointed him to share the gospel with the Gentiles and that they would believe. It was belief and not behavior that was the basis of which God saved Cornelius and his household approximately 10 years prior to this meeting, this council that took place. They were saved apart from circumcision. They were saved apart from law keeping. They were saved apart from the ritual of the law. The point is very simple and very clear. These false teachers had no right requiring Gentiles to do what God himself did not require of them. The matter was already settled by God. And in fact, if we look later, Paul would write to the Romans, turn to Romans chapter 10. We saw this in great detail when we did a study of the book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 10, we see very clearly the message or the essence of the gospel. And in verse 9 of Romans 10, we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. He says, and with the mouth, he confesses, confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is amply clear. That the message as it was delivered would be received by some and rejected by others. But the message was very clear. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who believe in him shall be saved. It had nothing to do with behavior. As I mentioned, behavior comes after belief. The second proof that he gives... ...back to Acts chapter 15... ...has to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Acts chapter 10... ...and read that account of Cornelius and his household... ...who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... ...for the forgiveness of their sin... ...the Bible says they received the gift of the Holy Spirit... It says the gift of the Spirit was given to them and God who knows in verse 8 who knows the heart bore witness to them giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Notice what he says. The gift of the Holy Spirit was given to those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, making no distinction between Jews, no distinction between Gentiles, no distinction between those who followed the law and those who did not follow the law. It was faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes one right with God. It's important that we see this, that it's the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O God, will never despise. The distance, I often say, between heaven and hell is a mere 18 inches. And you say, what are you talking about, 18 inches? 18 inches is the approximate distance from a person's head to a person's heart. What a person knows in their head is not enough to save them from the judgment of God. Yes, I knew for many years, I had heard it, that I was a sinner. And my life was evident. I had heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And I had heard that. And I knew that. I had heard of the resurrection. I had gone to church on Easter. I had, no, I had heard that. I knew that in my head. But I had never threw myself upon the mercy of God. From a heart standpoint and said, God, forgive me. For I am the reason that Jesus Christ was sent to die upon the cross. Forgive me my sins. It was always general. God loved the world, sent Christ in the world to die for the sins of people. Hey, it was always you people. Never was me. And when I recognized it was me, I said, Lord, I've heard this in my head, but I've never believed it in my heart. If we believe in our hearts, we are made right with God. And I want you to notice something. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness that these men and women had genuinely come to confess their sin before God and fall upon Him to receive His mercy and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection for them as individuals. And God, who knows the heart, these people were born again from above. Because God knows our heart. In February of 1978, God knew my heart. And the Bible says, I was born again from above, not from down below. All of God, not of my works and not of my effort. They were born again. And the evidence that they were born again is that they had received the Holy Spirit. You cannot be born again... ...without having the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's another lie from the pit of hell. That somehow you're born again and later you pray to receive the gift of the Spirit. What is that all about? That's not what the Bible teaches. We're washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're born again. We receive the Spirit of God who indwells us at the moment that we confess our sin... ...and throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. At that moment in time, we're born again. We receive the Holy Spirit... Jesus said when the spirit comes and he came at Pentecost and he's been with the church ever since and he indwells believers who have come to faith in Christ as a down payment that what God has promised he will fulfill. Jesus said when the spirit of God comes and indwells you, here's an evidence of it. I had tried to read the Bible before in my life and it made absolute no sense. I want you to understand something. Tell somebody, hey, read the book of John. Oh, yeah, okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and apart from Him, all things that came into being came into being, and nothing came into being that's come into being. And Him was the light. It's like, what? I go, I tried to read that before. I was like, uh, what? But when I was truly born again, and the Spirit of God indwells me and teaches me and guides me into all truth and reminds me of the things of Christ and convicts me of my sin and judgment and righteousness and leads me and guides me into all truth. I start to read the Bible and go, what's the problem? Why don't you understand that? Well, that's very simple. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Because later it says that He became flesh and dwelt among us. And He's a creator of all things. Why? Well, it's not hard to understand. It is for someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God because only the Spirit of God knows the mind of God and can understand spiritual things. See, they were given the gift of the Spirit and what I love about what he says was this. Notice what he said. They received the Spirit just as he also did to us. Notice what he said. He said they received the Spirit of God and we received the Spirit of God just like they did. It wasn't they received the Spirit of God like we did. He was putting them first to make a point, And the emphasis was, hey, you know what? We're no better than anybody. All of us are sinners before God. And we're all going to be saved by the grace of God. And who you think you are, that you're better than them, you're, we're all lost. There's no one more lost than anybody else. You may think you don't stink. But just ask the person sitting next to you. And he cleansed them from sin, and his point was very simple. God, who knows the heart, isn't going to cleanse a person from sin who is pretending to be broken for their sin. Think about it. You can't play, I can't play games with God. God knows our hearts. If you confess your sin, agree with God what you did is wrong, he then is faithful and just to what? What? forgive you and cleanse you of it. If you're playing a game with God, and we see that, you know, often, and we've got to be careful of those things, that's why it's always very careful, that we've got to be very careful about, you know, would you stand up, or will you come down front, or altar calls, or, you know, stand up if you want to give your life to Christ, or whatever, or stand up, it, like, it was like, you know, a few weeks ago, everybody stood up. Now, you know, the, the reality of that is, is that, you know, there were people that were here that day that felt very pressured by the fact that everybody else stood up. And, and some of you people stood up before I even said anything. And that's always a concern because you go, What are you standing up for? I haven't even said what I'm going to say. Well, I don't care whatever it is, I'm standing up. Well, I'm going to ask whoever wants to buy me a new car, stand up. <laughs> you know, we've got to be careful. We've got to understand what it is that we're saying. We agree to. See, God knows the heart and said, hey, he knew their heart. They were broken, they were contrite. They asked God to forgive forgive them, and guess what? And cleanse them of their sin. Cleansing their hearts, and notice what he says, by faith and faith alone. Their hearts weren't cleansed because they worked hard to get it scrubbed. Their hearts were cleansed because they believed that God was more than capable of cleansing them of sin. He goes on in another argument. The fourth one is, hey, you know what? The the inability of the law. What he was saying very simply is the inability of the law uh, to, to save is proof That salvation is by God's grace alone. Look at verses 10 and 11. Now therefore, why do you, notice this, he's saying, why do you put to test? Why are you testing God? Are you crazy? What's wrong with you people? Why are you putting to test God by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. You notice what he's saying? He's saying, why are you going around telling people that the only way to heaven is by doing good works when you weren't able to do good works? Why are you telling people they've got to be circumcised and follow the ritual and follow the law when you couldn't follow the law? Listen, the whole purpose of God's standards is to help us understand we can't do it. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, Thou shalt always have no other gods before God. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's possessions. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not kill. Sh- I mean, it's like, you go, ah. Who hasn't lied? Who hasn't cheated? Who hasn't stolen? Who hasn't wanted something that somebody else had? The whole purpose of the law is to help us understand about us what God already knows and that we are in big trouble. We can't do it ourselves. We need a Savior. And the law was a teacher or tutor that pointed to Jesus Christ. You can't do it, therefore I am doing it for you in the person of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Since you can't do it, stop trying, confess that you are a sinner, turn from sin, turn to God, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That is the essence and the message of the gospel. And when they came to the witness stand, they said, look, you know what? The past is already revealed that it's by faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ that one is saved. The past is already revealed because at the moment they were saved, they they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was evident to all. We received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. We're all the same under God. They were cleansed from sin because God knew their heart and wouldn't give the Holy Spirit to one who had not confessed his sin and was not cleansed before God. The washing and regeneration all takes place at the same time. We're born again from above. Why are you, ha- why are you trying to make them do what you want them to do when what you wanted to do, you couldn't even do? What's wrong with you people? And then they went on and said, Hey, and don't forget all the miracles that God had done through us. To affirm and and attest to the fact that what we were saying was true. And all the multitude, I love this, and all the multitude kept silent. A word of advice. Whenever you're wrong and the evidence is piling up against you, shut up. Just shut up. I know people say, oh, I don't like that word. Well, I don't care. You know, seriously. And and you know what I say to you? Oh, shut up. (laughs) That's just not nice. Oh, no, what's worse, lying and defending yourself when you're wrong or telling somebody just shut up and stop doing it? Give me a break. All right. Where are we? All right. And here's why he said to shut up. He said, notice in verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also. If you're going to say anything else, don't even bother, shut up. And the last thing and number six is the last proof is that there were prophetic promises. Prophetic promises, meaning that the word of God, you know, think about it. As always, when in doubt, when confused, check with the word of God. And James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, stood up and went to the scriptures as kind of the crowning argument and defense for the grace of God. He says, and after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Now you got to put your thinking cap on just for a second. But his argument is very simple and here's what he's saying. Listen the word of God proves that everything that just said was true. We know the word of God proves that everything was just said was true because now we have the complete word of God at the time they didn't have it. And so we have all of it. We've got everything and the entire word of God proves that salvation is by God's grace alone and not human effort. But even in the passage here in Amos that is quoted, he was proving to them once and for all that Gentiles didn't have to become Jews first in order to be saved. And the argument that he gave was very simple. When Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom here on earth, what's called the millennial kingdom or thousand year reign of christ a literal kingdom where he is upon this earth it says that at that time that gentiles will call upon his name and believe in him now the passage doesn't say in order for them to believe they have to be a jew first in order to believe what he was saying was it has always been god's plan that those who call upon his name would be saved not having to become anything else on in the on the way or in the process in order to arrive there What the Jews wanted was Gentiles to become Jews first and then to become Christians. It's kind of like a middle step. And what the Word of God clearly taught was, hey, in the past, no one had to go through anybody else. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In the present, nobody has to go through anybody else but go directly to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And in the future, in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus comes again, no one will have to go through anybody else but call upon the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. These are the six proofs that were given. Evidence that it's all God's grace and not human effort that saves anyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The past revealed it, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who have trusted in Christ. The cleansing of sin because God promises if you confess your sin, I'll cleanse you from it. And I know whether you mean business with me or not or whether you're blowing smoke because you're playing some game because of somebody else around you. I know your heart, and I know whether it's legit. And when it's legit, then I will cleanse you from your sin. I will restore your fellowship with me. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The inability of the law, you can't work your way to heaven. Try it. It'll frustrate you to no end. Try. I'm going to go to church every Sunday from now on. Right. Ain't going to happen. I'm going to start giving until things get a little tight. And that's not going to happen. They go, well, I, well, I I changed my program. Well, what's the program now? I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, right, until you have like a bad week, and then you get behind 16 chapters, and then you get overwhelmed by it, bogged down by it, and you go, I can't do this. So then you don't read anymore. See, you try to do it. You can't do it. None of us can do it. And it was never designed to lead anybody into salvation. The miracles affirmed that what they were saying was true and the word of God has always taught it. And as we look at this, notice the decision that came about because of this particular council meeting. The word therefore is therefore a very important reason. It is because they are taking action on what has just happened. Basically what it was was this. They had all the witnesses take the stand and they proved without any doubt whatsoever that salvation is all by God's grace through faith and not of human effort at all. So now they came to a verdict. What say you? Jury foreman, you have a verdict? We have a verdict. What was the verdict? Notice what they have to say in verse 19. This is James. Therefore, it is my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. What was his decision? Stop bugging these people. Lay off of them. Stop laying the guilt trip on them and a burden on them and stop, you know, denying their salvation in Christ. Stop making them feel like they're not worthy. None of us are worthy. It's all by God's grace. Stop making them feel bad that they're not living up to your expectations because who cares about your expectations? It's God's that matter. And all God expects is that you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you don't, you are already condemned and you're waiting final judgment. That's the simplicity of God's program. That's his plan for redemption. So he's saying, stop troubling those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we, like they, have been saved. The doctrinal issue was resolved for all of eternity. Don't bring it up again. It's a done deal. Period. Now, the practice is interesting. Because he recommends some things to resolve their differences. He says, but... We write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled from blood. What he is saying is, hey, there, there is a way that they should live. And God's grace isn't to be cheapened by us continuing to live in sin. Paul deals with that quite thoroughly in Romans chapter 6. But he's saying is if you've truly been born again, then live like you've been born again. You are a salt, you are a light. People are watching you at such a time as this to see how Christians deal with such uncertainty. And it amazes me that sometimes the ignorance of Christians who talk as if they're fearful. What do we have to fear? God is in control of all things or nothing. It's just amazing to me Well, whatever you do, don't go into a mall on October 31st. How many of you have got that email? And what's like, oh, and then was like, oh, okay, well, why won't? Well, we'll buy twice as much stuff on November 1st. What? Listen, we need to be discerning, we need to be wise, we need to be prudent, we need to seek God's leading and God's direction. But you know what? God leads and directs every individual, uh, sometimes differently. All of us the same when it comes to the commandments of God, the Word of God. What is sin is sin for all of us. But God's leading in our life is sometimes different. I mean, here's an example. We have friends who are missionaries that are in Indonesia. The State Department says you better get out of here because if you're preaching Christianity or telling people that it's by God's grace they're saved through faith and not of some kind of human effort or works that you're going to get imprisoned or maybe even you're going to get murdered or killed. Now, there might be those who say, well, you know what? I, I believe God's leading us to go ahead and leave. But there may be people saying, you know what? I really believe that this is where God wants us at this time. And we believe that we're in God's hands. And if, we, if God chooses that this is where we end our earthly existence and where we'll enter into the presence of God, then that's something that we've decided before God. And not another believer could tell that person what they were doing is wrong. See, we who are led by the Spirit of God, who indwells us as believers, sometimes we'll be led in a direction, as long as it's not in contradiction with the revealed will of God in His Word, sometimes we're going to be led in an area that the rest of the world stands back and says, you know what, I don't think that's the direction you should go. Yes, is there safety in a multitude of counselors? Absolutely. But the counsel better come from the revealed will of God or word of God that we see in the Bible. Should we look at at, at counsel? Yes. Should we look at the word of God? Yes. Should we pray? Yes. If we're married, should we ask and consider what our spouse has to say and our family? Yes. But in its totality, when it's all said and done, we must also obey God rather than man. That's what's going on. Their commands were, hey, stop Being sexually impure, which was a command, duh. And stop worshipping idols, which you no longer have to do because you know the living God. So those were commands. The concessions were, well, you know what? And since they deal with a lot of Jews and they spend a lot of time together and they come from a different background, what he was saying to them was, hey, listen, here's the deal. Stop eating food that will be offensive to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, they got to hang up because they've been following the law all of their life. They were told in the law that they had to prepare food a certain way. And kosher food was all the blood had to be drained out of it because the life was in the blood. And so then, the, you know, Gentiles would come along and say, Hey, hey, uh, hey, Saul, you wanna, you, how do you want your steak? Medium rare? They'd be like, Oh! oh can't eat a medium rare. There's blood dripping out of it. What are you doing, you know? And they, were, had, they had so much dissension because of that. His point was very simple. When you folks are together... Don't go out of your way to cause an offense with another brother or sister in Christ. If they are offended by you having your steak medium rare or raw or however, then you know what? Either eat something else or cook it to where they won't be disgusted watching you eat it. And that was a concession, that has to do with the liberty of grace and that we don't go out of our way to offend brothers and sisters in Christ in areas where God says, hey, we have the freedom. Hey, when you're by yourself and there's no Jews around that have that background and you want to eat your steak rare, then have at it. But when they're there and they're offended by it, then in Christian love and liberty, consider others more important than yourself. That's all he was saying. And it was a beautiful culmination of all the dissension that was going on. And when God's in in the midst of something, man, there is peace and there is joy and there is harmony and there is unity. The point was the legalistic Jews willingly gave up insisting that Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved. And the Gentiles willingly accepted a change in their eating habits so as not to offend their Jewish brothers in the Lord. James gives two principles for grace-filled living and we'll put it all together on this. Number one, as those under grace... We are not to make non biblical requirements of others. As those under grace, we are not to make non biblical requirements of others. Period. We accept one another in the Lord, realizing that God leads and directs in various ways, various manners. We must all agree that Scripture is the basis for all of our actions and decisions, but we must also never make non biblical requirements of others we so easily push our preferences on other people. We assume that they will either do things our way or that they're somehow now unspiritual. They're not as mature as us if they don't do it the way we want them to do it. We often push others through the paces of our own heritage or backgrounds before we fully accept them as brothers or sisters in Christ. And sadly, sometimes a church will radiate more of this than the gospel. Give me an example. One of the reasons, uh, though though not the only one, that we're not to uh, do this is because of what it does to us. Listen to a story Winston Churchill told of a British family that went out for a picnic by a lake. In the course of the afternoon, the five-year-old son fell into the water. Unfortunately, none of the adults could swim. As the child was bobbing up and down and everyone on the shore was in panic, a passerby saw the situation at great personal risk to himself, dove in fully clothed, managed to reach the child just before he went under for the third time, saving his life. He was able to pull him out of the water, present him safe and sound to his mother. Instead of thanking the stranger for his heroic efforts, however, the mother snapped peevishly at the rescuer, "'Where's Johnny's hat?' Somehow, in all the commotion of drowning, or almost drowning, he lost his hat. And the rescuer didn't bring his hat back. I think of that story because it relates so often to what we go through as God's people. Instead of concentrating on, we've been saved by the grace of God, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we have all been forgiven who have called upon the name of the Lord. We start to nitpick at what we think other people should be doing because either we think they should be doing it or because we're doing it ourselves. Therefore, if we're doing it and you want to be more spiritual, then you should be doing it too. Knock that off. That is not grace in action. That's a subtle form of legalism and it almost split the church and it splits churches all the time. Churches split on whether a piano should be on that side or on this side, whether the organ should be over here or over there. How the, worship, uh, how the order of a worship should go, how many songs there should be, what type of music, you know, whether we're allowed to clap or not clap. And it's like, give me a break. Why don't we just rejoice in the grace of God and salvation through Christ alone because none of us are worthy and none of us deserve it. Now, Now, for those of you who clapped, you just offended those who don't believe that you should clap. That's why we're so confused. It's like, really, my heart wants to clap, but I I just can't clap because I I just don't know what to do. It's the funniest thing when I see these guys leading worship and they're just like, you know what, man? My spirit is dancing, but if it comes out to where it actually starts to affect like my leg or my hand, you know, I may be in big trouble. You know, all, all I'm saying is just, man, just loosen up, relax, it's okay. Christians can smile. You can actually come to church and go, Man, you know what? I learned a lot and was glad I was there. Instead of going, Okay, one more on the chart. Got the points for today. If that's why you came. No, you didn't. (laughs) Alrighty. (laughs) Second principle. Because we are under grace, we will gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. If our behavior offends a brother in Christ, then let us forsake such behavior out of Christian love. Let us consider others more important than ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those who are not having the law. What he's saying is simple. Don't ever miss the big picture. The big picture is that we are in the position that we are. So that we can share the love of God with the lost and falling world so we can share very clearly that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and a gift from God so that no one can boast. Don't let other things get in the way and crowd out that message because we live in a world, as I already stated, that believes that 80% of people who believe they're going to heaven are going because of their own efforts. And the Bible says that that belief and those efforts will fall far short of the glory of God. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, and not of works, so that none of us could ever boast in the kingdom of God. Praise God for His grace. Father, we just love you, we thank you, that it is your grace, and grace alone, that saves. It's not only the grace that saves us, but it's also the grace that that preserves us, and the grace that you've given us to endure this life. Lord, I pray that we never become so stuffy and so legalistic and so demanding that our demands crowd out the simplicity of the gospel message. I pray that we never hold people up to our standard of behavior rather than to your word as the final say in what is truth. God, help us to be ambassadors of Christ to deliver truth to a lost and fallen world. To a world that doesn't know you and doesn't know the things of God, nor does it understand the plan of God. To us, you have given us the privilege and also the responsibility to share your word, to share your proclamation with a lost and condemned world. God, I just thank you that it's by grace that I've been saved through faith and not of my own efforts because my efforts always fell short. That none of us can ever work our way into your presence. None of us can ever outdo what you have done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His death upon the cross, his shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sin and the power of his resurrection demonstrating once and for all eternity that he is truly the Savior of the world. I pray for those today who believe maybe when they came here that it was by their own efforts that they would get to heaven, that you would convict their hearts and they would clearly see that they need to recognize that they're sinners, fall far short of your standard of perfection, that they would turn from sin and turn to God, a broken heart, O God, you say you'll never despise, As they call upon you for forgiveness, you tell us that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as they believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that what you say is true, that they shall be saved. For with the mouth confesses, but with the heart man believes. God, I just thank you and praise you that your word is so clear. May we act upon it in a way that's pleasing to you. Amen. Amen.